esteemed alumni in the, in the service tonight. We have uh, Jennifer Pescorse is here. Um, it's good to have you, Jim and Judy Wilson are here visiting us. It's good to see you guys. It's good to have you with us to worship Christ Jesus. So, all right, give our best, give our best regards to uh, to the Chan man. Um, I just want to forewarn you: this sermon is not for sissies. Okay, so if you're a sissy. Um, Probably shouldn't have said it like that. <laughs> we are going to talk about weighty matters tonight. So I want, you to, I want you to be still before the Lord. I want you to be still before His Word. And let's hear what the Lord has to say to us. 2004 was our first year in Milan. We had a wonderful young man in the church uh, in 2004, his name was Leslie Koo, and he was from Indonesia. He was our young adult Bible study group. We drove to Monza each week. Karen and I and Leslie had a Bible study. Um, we fell in love with this young man, and uh, we enjoyed him very much. Does anyone remember what happened December 26, 2004? The, the great tsunami in the Indian Ocean, the 9.0 earthquake, which spawned uh, that 100-foot tsunami wave uh, in that area. We were in the States when it happened, and we knew that, that Leslie had gone back to Indonesia. So immediately, I, I sent off emails to Leslie, but I could not reach him. It took me until about February. He finally responded. I knew if, if he'd been swept away that he was with the Lord. But I hadn't heard from him. And I finally heard from him in late February. He was fine. But of course, he knew some who had been swept away and some who had lost everything. Google says that over a quarter of a million people died in that tsunami. That's just stunning and mind-boggling to me. Uh, again, I wanted to give credit where credit was due. Harry and Susan are really ones that the Lord used to prompt me to preach this sermon. And I checked Friday on the latest statistics on the tsunami in Japan. And the latest numbers are that there are 10,000 dead and another 12,000 are still missing. I know that many of you, if not all of you, saw the video and just the raw, irrepressible power of that wave destroying and laying waste to everything in its path. It was terrifying to watch. Inevitably, when these kinds of things happen, the questions about God and accusations uh, aimed at God begin to come. Where was God during these natural disasters? Why did God let this happen? Could God have stopped this? If God were good, would He not have prevented this? If God were omnipotent, would He not have stopped this? God is either good or He is 
uh, he is either uh, not there or he is not good or he is not omnipotent. He's not the God that the Bible says he is. These are always the questions and the accusations, are they not? And beloved, we need to be able to respond to these questions and we need to be able to respond to these accusations in a biblical way. We don't need to stand there with a blank look on our face. We don't know everything that God is always doing. He doesn't exhaustively reveal that to us, but we know the important things to say. We know the indispensable things that need to be said in the midst of calamity. Isn't it true the only time you hear God's name in the media in any non-derogatory sense is when He is being mocked, which I guess is a derogatory sense, or indicted. Isn't this what natural man does to the Lord? He is mocked or indicted any time there is a natural disaster like this. In my research this week, I saw a quote from David Hart. He's a Wall Street Journal reporter. Uh, and he was commenting on the 2004 tsunami, and he writes this, No Christian is licensed to utter odious banalities about God's inscrutable counsels or blasphemous suggestions that all this mysteriously serves God's good end. As a Bible-believing Christian, how would you respond to Mr. Hart? Does God's Word speak to this matter? Does the Christian have something meaningful to say in a time like this? Or is it true that all we have are odious banalities? Another quote I came across in my background reading this week was a quote by American journalist uh, Daniel Shore. You may remember the, the big hurricane in, in New Orleans uh, back in 05, Hurricane Katrina. And he said this after that hurricane, if God is the intelligent designer, then after witnessing this hurricane, He has something to answer for. So, how do you respond? How do you respond to, as a Bible-believing Christian, how do you respond to Mr. Shore? Indeed, does God have something to answer for? What does God's Word say to His people? 1981, some of you know this book, maybe the worst book ever written, worst theology book ever written by Rabbi Harold Kushner. He wrote a book entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Regarding natural disasters, he basically asserts that God has no part in them and He's utterly powerless to stop them. Does that sound like the God of the Bible to you? Again, how does the Christian respond? to such a ridiculous allegation. What does the Bible have to say? Is God powerful enough to speak a hundred billion galaxies into existence and yet impotent to stop a wave? What do we have to say about that as Christians? I've told you many times, God does not explain Himself. God is not in the business of explaining Himself to His creatures. It's one of the glaring and beautiful and, in my view, most prized realities in the life of Job. God never explained anything to Job. God just showed Himself to Job. And beloved, if you've been to the bottom, you know, ultimately, as I said a couple of weeks ago, 
I wouldn't trade the revelation of God for 10,000 explanations of God. I would rather have Him present in my life in a meaningful way, a powerful way, an intimate way, than have 10,000 explanations. God does not explain Himself to His people. So, in the face of jaw-dropping natural disaster, does the Bible-believing Christian have anything coherent, anything cogent, anything important to say? Yes. I would assert that the Bible-believing Christian is the only one on the planet that has anything to say of any value when we start asking the big questions of ultimate reality. John Piper says it perfectly. Let me credit John Piper. I'm going to quote him a lot tonight. He is one of my favorite teachers. But I drank deeply um, from his uh, books in preparing this lesson. So I want to give him credit when I quote him directly and when I indirectly uh, quote him in an unconscious way, I want to give him credit because he's, uh, he's right on here. He has rightly divided the word here. John Piper says it like this, In the face of disaster, we weep with those who weep. As we have opportunity, we aid and assist the survivors in distress. But sooner or later, people want more than empathy and aid. They want answers. Amen? When love has wept and worked, it must have something to say about God. Amen? It doesn't have to... Uh, we, we don't have to have all the answers. Only God has all the answers. But we have the Bible and it is not silent about these things. In the face of cataclysmic natural disaster, Mr. Hart of the Wall Street Journal does not have anything meaningful to say. Mr. Shore of National Public Radio does not have anything meaningful to say. Rabbi Kushner has nothing meaningful to say. All they have is speculation. That's all they have. But God has plenty to say in His gracious gift to man. His gracious gift to man. The 66 books of the Bible, written the written Word of God, and in His Son, the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. While God has not revealed all things, He has revealed the indispensable things to His people. While we do not understand all things, and I don't stand up here and pro pro profess to exhaust all the knowledge of God, I just want to give you what God has said to us. We do not understand all things, but we do understand the essential things. We do understand the essential things. Much of the modern church has abandoned the awesome, fearsome, consuming fire God of the Bible. Having devolved into propagating warm and fuzzy half-truths and sentimental cliches. I have to quote Piper again. John Piper says of this modern dilemma in the church against the overwhelming weight and seriousness of the Bible, much of the church is choosing to become more light, more shallow, and more entertainment-oriented. 
And therefore, listen to this, successful in its irrelevance to massive suffering and evil. The popular church, pardon me, the popular God of fun church is simply too small and too affable to hold a hurricane in his hand. But that is not Jehovah God. Piper goes on to say, if we would actually open our Bibles and read them, it would explode all the trivial notions we have about who God is. I confessed to Karen this week that the Lord had laid it on my heart to preach this sermon and I was, I was very intimidated. I'm intimidated often when I come to preach the, the Word of God and I trust in Him to empower me to do it. But I'm intimidated for two reasons. One is that there may be some in here, some in this room that are still entertaining trivial notions about the God of the Bible. And you're going to have a hard time hearing what Scripture has to say. If you're entertaining trivial notions about Him, if you have some man-made caricature of God in your mind and in your heart, it may be hard for you to hear what the Lord is going to say to us tonight. This is not a cotton candy sermon. It is strong meat. And I pray that we have the ears to hear it. Secondly, it is my desire to be careful and to only speak accurately and biblically about God. I tremble at this. I just want us to behold Him as He is. And I don't want to miscommunicate who He is, and what He does. So pray for me as we go through this together. I guess the best place to start is the question, why? Why are there earthquakes? Why are there tsunamis? Why are there hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and volcanic eruptions? Why do these things happen? Is there a flaw in the intelligent designer's design? Did the Creator create a defective creation? How do we respond to the world when they accuse our God in this light? You know that God answers these questions, right? Who knows where God answers these questions? Psalms. Pardon me? Psalms. Psalms. He does speak to this in the Psalms. Anyone else? That's not the passages I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about what God says in Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn there to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 20 and, uh, 21 and 22. Romans chapter 8, verse 20, 21 and 22. Is there a flaw in the intelligent designs, des uh, designer's design? What does God's Word have to say? What does God's Word have to say to Daniel Shore who uh, mocks and who indicts God? God says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption in, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until 
Now, what is the Apostle Paul saying to us? Who did this? Who subjected the creation to futility? Who did it? Was it Adam? Was it man? Who was it? It was God, right? And we understand this from the text. It was done in hope. Adam didn't sin in hope. Satan doesn't wreak havoc in hope. God did it, what? In hope. We know it's God. We know it grammatically. And we know it theologically. That it's God. In hope of what? That the creation itself would be set free from corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. No, it wasn't Satan and it wasn't man. It was the Creator who subjected the creation. It was part of His response to your sin and my sin. And the sin of our forebears. The sin of Adam. And the sin of Eve. There's a massive biblical truth here that natural man will not hear and accept and that too many uh, professing Christians do not fully grasp and understand. Sin, our sin is against an infinitely good, holy, righteous, and just God and it is, beloved, it is, it is unspeakably heinous and monstrous and horrific. I know we don't think of sin like that, but this is the picture of the Bible. It is horrific in the eyes of God. It is heinous in the eyes of God. So much so, that part of God's judicial decree in the fall was that not only would man be subject to corruption and futility, that all of the creation would be subject to corruption and futility. Romans 5.12 tells us that through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And God extended that to all of the created Order. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Some of you guys, some of you smart guys will know what that is. The law of entropy. The universe is winding down. It's because of sin. There's no flaw in the creation. It's because of sin. It's a, it's a physical picture of the moral reality. Sin is so heinous to God, to an infinitely holy God, that all of creation has been subjected to futility and corruption. God means for His people to understand that natural disasters are not a flaw in the, the design of the natural order, but it is a consequence of man's rebellion and man's sin. Regarding all the suffering in life, whether it be personal or communal, John Piper again. He writes, Sufferings of this life are part of a universal God-decreed collapse of creation into disorder because of sin. God has subjected the world to futility because of sin. Therefore, all the misery in the world, and it is great, is a bloody declaration against the ghastly horror of sin. Beloved, we need to think like this. We need to think like this or we'll be accusing God ourselves. If we don't think biblically, if we don't think biblically and understand 
how heinous and ghastly our sin is before the Lord. Piper continues, all natural evil is a statement about the horror of moral evil. Beloved, that's powerful theology. Unbelievers and unregenerate nominal Christians will not hear this. It's abhorrent to them. It's offensive to them. They scoff at such biblical truth. It's ludicrous to those who put uh, the life of man above the glory of God. Which of course we understand the Bible does not do. The Bible is not man-centered. The Bible is what? Someone tell me. The Bible is God-centered. It's about God, what He's done, and how He's redeeming a people for Himself out of the rebellious, sinful, fallen race of man. Unbelievers, unregenerate, nominal Christians, they, they have no concept of the holiness of God. And they have no concept of the depth of their depravity. Beloved, God is not just a little miffed at our rebellion and our sin. As Jonathan Edwards says it perfectly in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. God is dreadfully provoked. I know that in, in most places, and we love to preach about the love of God. We love to preach about the grace of God. We love to preach about the mercy of God. Praise the Lord that we can preach these things. But God says, I am a God of wrath. I will punish my enemies. Beloved, it's a biblical truth. It's just not ever preached anymore. Except in a handful of places where men tremble more before the Lord than they do before, before men. God is dreadfully provoked. God says it. Romans, I remember I preached this text in seminary. It was one of my sermons I had to preach in seminary. I was assigned Romans 1.18. You guys know the great text. Romans 1.18 My wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's an ongoing thing. God says, it's happening right now. I'm revealing my wrath right now. You know, beloved, that 50 million people a year on this planet die. By the time I finish preaching this, since we've been gathered, six, seven, or 8,000 people will have died somewhere in the world. God's wrath is being revealed. The wages of sin is, someone tell me, death. God's wrath is being revealed every second of every day. It's not always like the 2004 tsunami when a quarter of a million people are swept away and we're, we're in horror. Beloved, it happens every day. It's happening. God's wrath is being revealed. The wages of sin is death. Is the Bible telling us that natural disasters are the result of sin? Is that what the Bible is telling us? That's exactly what the Bible is telling us. All natural disasters are the result of the, the sin of Adam in a universal sense. The creation has been subject to futility. Were it not for the universal fall and sin of, of, of man, there would be no natural disasters. We'd still be living in the garden. We'd still be in paradise were it not for our rebellion and sin. 
And I want you to listen to me really, really close in the next few minutes, okay? I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Is the Bible saying that the sin of the Japanese warranted such a calamity? Is the Bible saying that the sin of the Indonesians and the Malaysians and the Sri Lankans and the Indians and the Burmese warranted such a catastrophe? Is the Bible saying that the Americans living on the Gulf Coast warranted such a disaster? Is this what the Bible is saying? And I want you to hear me clearly. The Bible's answer is yes, but no more than you or I. They are no more guilty than you or I. Beloved, we shouldn't be astonished that, that God's wrath breaks out. We shouldn't be astonished that men and women and boys and girls are dying all over the world. We should not be astonished. We should be astonished that any of us get to draw one more breath because we have infinitely offended God. Who in the world praises God for 10,000 days of wrath withheld? Whoever does that? Whoever does that, beloved? Oh, but we're ready to mock Him and indict Him when a huge disaster falls upon this rebellious planet and this rebellious race. Beloved, we need to learn to think biblically. We should not be astonished when calamity comes. We should be astonished every day that it does not come. We should be astonished every day. You know why? It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of mercy. It's a picture of patience. It's a picture of forbearance. God is dreadfully provoked. I don't know how many times. I didn't look it up. Look it up and you can read it in the Old Testament. Multiple times, many times. It doesn't just talk about the wrath of God. The Bible talks about the fierce wrath of God. He is dread dreadfully provoked at our sin. R.C. Sproul says it so well. He says, we're shocked by justice and we presume on grace. Is that not the human race? We presume on grace. We expect every day to go perfectly when the wages of sin is death. We presume on grace and we are shocked when justice falls. Beloved, who weeps over their sin? Who weeps over their sin and their rebellion before God? Who laments and weeps? Not very many of us, I fear. Listen to what God says in Romans 2. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of my kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This day of grace is for repentance. And for those of you out there who are believers, it's for you to be using your gift and be making Jesus famous in the world and sharing the Gospel with the unbeliever and being used mightily in the church and the body of Christ. The kindness of God leads us to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are... What does the Bible say? Does anyone know this text? It's a well-known text. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We said it a hundred times in this pulpit. Beloved, if you're walking the planet and you're breathing, it's grace because you should be in hell. 
I should be in hell. This is the clear teaching of the Bible. That's where I should be. That's what my sin deserves. If I'm drawing a breath on this planet, it's, it's grace. It's mercy. It's forbearance. It's love. It's exactly what it is. We live in the last days, beloved. And it's, a, it's an era, an, an era of, of, of grace and wrath. They're commingled. It's commingled in, this, in these last days. Romans 1.18 is true. God's revealing His wrath. But Romans 2.4 is also true. God's forbearance and kindness is evident everywhere. Vastly more people are walking the planet and breathing and eating uh, His food than are being... Uh, than die. Than die on a regular basis. Every natural disaster bears both the marks of God's wrath and the marks of His grace. Natural calamity, I want you to hear this, natural calamity is God's preview of what sin deserves and will soon receive in the final judgment. But beloved, it will be infinitely worse than an earthquake and a tsunami. It will be eternal judgment. You know the great text, Revelation 6, 16 and 17, talking about the wrath of Jesus Men will seek to hide themselves and will say to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? The great day of wrath is coming. Right now is a dispensation of grace and wrath commingled. Repent is the message. Repent. And that's what Jesus is going to say to us. As we look at Luke, as we look at Luke chapter 13, in and through uh, God's righteous judgment of sin, He is working renewal, recreation, rebirth, and resurrection in His people and in His creation. That's what the Romans 8 passage tells us. He is doing both of those things. So, how is a natural calamity or any calamity? How does it exhibit? How is it a mark? How does it uh, trumpet the grace of God? Jesus speaks to this in Luke 13. You heard the text read. If you read chapter 12 of Luke, you find out that this is a sermon from the lips of Jesus and He's talking about man's guilt and man's accountability to the Lord. Chapter 12 ends, Jesus warns... uh, warns, uh, that He will ultimately judge the world and that every man needs to be concerned about making peace with God before He stands before the judge. This is how chapter 12 ends. And then someone asks a question from the group, from the crowd. There are probably 10,000 people gathered around Jesus at this time. And Jesus says, verse 2, Well, let me start in verse 1. They ask about this tragedy that happened when Pilate's soldiers killed the Galileans, slayed the Galileans as they were worshiping. Verse 2, Jesus said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Verse 3, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose, verse 4, that those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them 
were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. Jesus says, verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice what Jesus says and what Jesus does not say. First, He does not explain. Jesus does not explain these calamities. He gives no explanation. But He speaks in grace. This calamity is to get you to consider your standing before the Lord is basically what Jesus says. And unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Their sin was no worse than your sin. You deserve to have a tower fall on you right now. But it's a call to repentance, beloved. For all who survive and observe the natural calamity, it is a call of God to repent. That's what it is. God's always doing a billion things all at once. Always. You know, He multitasks. He's always doing a billion things all at once. He's working wrath and He's working mercy. Every time I preach the Gospel, God is working wrath and God is working mercy. I know that. I know that many who hear me preach the Gospel will reject Christ Jesus and the wrath of God will fall upon them. I understand that. But I know that those who come to Christ by faith, those who receive Christ, will live forever in glory. So God's always working in this dispensation. Wrath and grace. I like how Piper says it. Paraphrasing Jesus says, uh, paraphrasing, paraphrasing Jesus here. He says, no, their sin was not extraordinarily horrible. It was ordinarily horrible. Do you get that? It was ordinarily horrible like yours and mine. It's horrible every day. It's horrific every day. Beloved, that's why the Son of God is, is on that cross bleeding. Because your sin is horrible. Do you understand it? We're coming up on Easter. I pray you worship like you've never worshipped before. This awesome God has saved you from wrath. That's why He's torn and bloodied on that cross. Because your sin and my sin put Him there. This is what the Bible teaches. Your, your sin is ordinarily heinous just as mine is. Jesus is quite blunt. you got to love it. I love it the way Jesus speaks. They're saying, well, what's the deal here? Unless you repent, you, like, you, you too will likewise perish. Don't you love it? Just the blunt word from the Lord. This is a gracious, merciful warning. Again, beloved, the world should not be shocked when men die either by natural causes or through man-made calamity or natural calamity, the world should be amazed that God has given us yet another day of grace and mercy and forbearance and patience. Jesus is reminding us here in Luke 13 that we are all living on borrowed time. We are all living on Borrowed time. Death is coming for every one of us. And we never know when. In short, when calamity and disaster comes, it's God's, it's God's thunderclap warning. Wrath is coming. If you have not repented, repent. Wrath is coming. God is coming. The last day is coming. 
This is the warning of God in mercy. Men arrogantly and mistakenly believe that a long and healthy life is their right. Don't we tend to live with that assumption that I, I, I should be, well, the statistical life age is 75 or something. Well, I, I'm entitled to that, right? Don't we feel like that sometimes? Or at least don't we let that sink into our subconscious? I, I should get that too, right? Wrong. <laughs> Every day is mercy. Every single day. Every single day, beloved, is mercy. We are entitled to nothing but justice. Do you want justice from God? If I get justice from God, I go to hell. If I get grace, if I come to Christ, I have the love of God and the eternity that He purchased for me. God doesn't preserve the lives of sinful men because they deserve to live. He preserves the lives of sinful men because He is a merciful God. One more day to repent. One more day to repent. Every man on this planet has earned his wages. Calamity of any kind is always a wake-up call that we should deal with ultimate reality. That it would shock us out of our Satan-inspired, man-made illusions about this life. Death is coming. And yes, God means for us to enjoy our life. But beloved, sometimes we need to take stock and be sober before the Lord. And remember the magnitude of grace that He has shown us. Ezekiel says, Ezekiel 33.11, God says through the prophet, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather desire that the wicked turn back from his way and live. God says through Peter, 2 Peter 3.8 and 9, that He is not slow about bringing judgment as men count slowness, but is patient toward sinners that they might come to repentance. God shouts three times from the pen of the writer of Hebrews, Today, if you hear My voice, do not harden your heart. Beloved, if you're an unbeliever, come to Christ today. If you know an unbeliever, go talk to them about Christ today. Or tomorrow. Or Tuesday or Wednesday. Death is coming. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. God is coming. Arrogant and ignorant men love to indict God when calamity strikes. But we must remind arrogant and ignorant men that God is not on trial. We are. God is not on trial. Mankind is. Let me just say parenthetically, and I'm about finished. How do we speak about Christians who die in these natural disasters, in these man, even man-made disasters? How do, we speak, how do we speak about the Christians who are swept away? What do we say about them? Well, it's quite easy. We acknowledge that God is sovereign in both life and death. Right? 1 Samuel chapter 2. We know that we are not exempt from the calamities of this fallen world. John chapter 16. We know that God ordains our days before we are conceived. Uh, Psalm 139. 
We understand from Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him, those called according to His purpose. We understand from Psalm 116 that precious in the sight of the Lord is what? Someone tell me. If you don't know this verse, you need to know it. The death of His saints. It's precious in the eyes of the Lord. Beloved, it'll be your best day. The day you're called home will be your best day. Bar none. Bar none. We understand this. We understand this. And I've said it a lot the last month, to live as Christ, to die as gain. So there's an ocean of theology there. There's a mountain of theology there. We don't have time to, to, to dive into. Suffice to say, we trust our God with our lives and with our deaths. Amen? Close parenthesis. So, to David Hart of the Wall Street Journal, we reply, we do have license to speak on these matters because our Father God has spoken on these matters. We don't have all the answers, but we have the ones that matter. Our answers are not odious banalities. They are the words of life. To the American news analyst Daniel Shore demanding an explanation from God, God does not answer you, Daniel Shore, or anyone else. But we will all answer to Him according to Scripture. What do we respond to Rabbi Harold Kushner who contended that God is an impotent God, a frustrated God, a God who's unable to control His creation? We say that the Bible says our God speaks and a hundred billion galaxies stand forth. Our God speaks and the earth trembles. Our God speaks and the waves cease. That's our God. Rabbi, that's our God. Natural disaster is no indictment upon God, but upon mankind. The point of every deadly calamity is to remind us, to graciously remind the survivors and all who observe of the horror of our sin before a holy God of the reality of God's wrath and our imminent death and of God's merciful call to the living to repent and run to Jesus. I'm just going to close with Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. God says, to all who are willing to hear, God says, seek the Lord while He may be found Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and He will have compassion on him and He will abundantly pardon. Beloved, this is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this strong Word. We thank You for how it humbles us. We thank You for how it knocks all of our arrogance out of us. We, we thank You for how it, remi it reminds us to be thankful every day for grace and mercy. 
Father, forgive us when we think lightly about these things. Forgive us that we are not able to speak boldly out in the world about these things. I know You mean for us to be able to speak boldly about these things out in the world so men might repent, men might run to Jesus. While there's still time, run to Jesus. Death is coming. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. God is coming. Be reconciled. Run to the cross. Run to the Savior. Run to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray we would be faithful. We would be faithful to give out this message. Lord, forgive us our sin. And we know it is great and heinous, but it has been nailed to the tree. And we praise You, Father, for such a great love, such unfathomable grace, such an unbelievable Savior. Father, I pray that we would take stock tonight, that we would be sober, that we would take just a, a, a little time to be sober and to rejoice. To rejoice in who You are and what You've done. Lord, may we be faithful in communicating that this is the day of grace. May we be faithful, Lord, by our lives, by our deeds, and by our words. May men around us know that this is the day of grace. We thank You for this great message, Father. We give all praise, glory, and honor to the matchless and beautiful and almighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.